Going Linux, episode 320, listener feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. And I'm your co-host, Bill. Whether you're new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will provide you with valuable information and advice that will help you in Going Linux. We hope that you'll find this and all of our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and open source applications and using them to get things done. If you want, you can send us feedback at goinglinux at gmail.com or our voicemail at 1-904-468-7889. In today's episode, listener feedback. Hello, Larry. Hey, Bill. Where in the world is Bill today? <laughs> <laughs> is that like Waldo? Where Where's Waldo? <laughs> yeah, yeah. where's Waldo? Or where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? I am still in New Mexico. Okay, good. You haven't uh, moved to a new state. <laughs> no, I think this is the last one. <laughs> okay, all right, good, good. <laughs> yeah, I'm, it's been t- too much work to move. Okay, all yeah. right. So you've got stability in your life now. Well, it's as stable as it gets. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Any plans to uh, switch uh, distros? Let's Already say, did or something like that. oh, uh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. What are you running can't, now? Can't leave well enough alone. I went back to Sabian Linux because there's lots of things I can fiddle with and and uh, okay. I've been having it's it's been running pretty well. I like I said it's I switched desktops from the KDE uh, to it. Golly, I've tried a couple. I don't know which one I have it set on right this moment. I think it's on <laughs> Noon right now, but I okay. have, but I have, uh, uh, I think it's uh, the XFCE also installed. But I think I got it on Gnome right now. But then again, I've got KD uh, desktop installed. I've got the XFCE desktop installed, and I got the Gnome. But but uh, uh, I think going with the uh, GNOME or XFCE desktop is the way to go. The KDE is a little funky. Funky? Funky. We'll go with that. That's yeah, good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, I hear that you you have a new uh, uh, Wonderlust going on for a new System76. <laughs> yeah, I've been uh, looking at the uh, upgrade to the model that I currently have. So a few years ago, I purchased a Galago Pro, and as I hear the System 76 people pronounce the na- the model name, it's Galago. So the Galago Pro, and they discontinued it shortly after I purchased it. I bought it at the end of its cycle, I guess. Uh, they're reintroducing a new version that has an aluminum body, backlit keys, and all kinds of slick stuff that the version that I have doesn't have. So, yeah, uh, I, I don't need a new computer right now. The one I've got is working just fine. And it's got a, the, the one I have is a 14-inch display as opposed to the 13-inch that the the new Galago Pro has, but uh, hmm, yeah, I, I still, it's not available yet anyway, so I don't even have the opportunity to spend money, even if I had the money to spend on it right now. So there you go. Well, <laughs> I'm always lusting after new laptops. Well, I'm, I'm of course. About, about the same, so we'll move on from there. But uh, have you been uh, following anything about what Microsoft's doing to those Windows 7 and 8 users? 
Micro, micro, what? I'm not familiar with that company. I I don't like to rename them Micropane, but Microsoft. No, no, I haven't. It looks like uh, they're going. If you're running Windows Seven or Eight, that pretty soon, I think it's like in July, that if you decide that you um, want a new computer with the new like Skyline chips in it, uh, Mm -hmm. it it might not work. Hmm. So that's kind of crazy. I mean, I don't know about you, but remember we uh, back in the day when we used to build the computers because it was cheaper. You would get picked the process you want, the memory, the video, and and now you're having Microsoft saying, well, you know, you can do that, but if you don't install our latest and greatest, or you don't want to pay for it, you just want to, you know, put your uh, old. Um, drive with your system in it, uh, which is, that's another whole subject, but uh, you can't do it. And I thought that was kind of crummy for <laughs> this me, I mean, you know. Uh, oh. So it might be a good time to start thinking about moving to Linux. Yes, I agree. I agree for lots of reasons, including that one. Yeah, All Windows, right. Windows 10, I mean, too much going on with that thing. So anyway, looks like listener feedback today. Yes, absolutely. And uh, why don't we have you start with the first one? I always start. Your turn. Yeah, always always make me earn my paycheck. <laughs> okay, our first email is from Mario. And he writes, Hi, Larry and Bill. Bill, haven't you had enough being a distro hopper? Now you're becoming a home hopper. LOL. Yes, yes. I think my home hopper days are over. But anyway, continuing, he said he has a comment on episode 319. He said, thanks for sharing again rsync tips. You did talk about grsync as one of the graphical interfaces for it in the Ubuntu GNOME software. I've, I'm having Ubuntu LTS 16.04. I found another rsync graphical interface called Lucky Backup. Very nice interface. You can set up your backup job to include files, folders, or to exclude file and folders. You can uh, set to keep multiple snapshots. And he said he set his to be two. You can schedule your job using the same graphical interface and save it in your Chrome tab. Nice features. You can get the backup uh, report by email, which can be nice when you're set up setting up multiple jobs or managing remote backup. Really simple interface. I feel it's a bit more feature rich than the GR Sync. GR Sync works too. Like it at first to do an ad hoc backup, but now that I know Lucky Backup, I can schedule it or run an ad hoc backup restore. Thanks for reminding people the importance of doing proper backups. So many of my friends calling me to help them, <laughs> but then they don't have any backups, even if I hammer on them the idea to get them done regularly. Always get the yes, yes, yes answer and never see them do it. <laughs> uh, never have uh, time or never think about it. I should automate it for them knowing rsync is also available on that other OS with a big smiley face. Keep up the good work, Mario. P.S. Less and less using WOS, the more I feel free. <laughs> yep. Yep, absolutely. Well, thanks for that tip. Um, I recall hearing about Lucky Backup a while ago, and I simply 
haven't uh, looked into it. So it sounds like it's an alternative that uses R-Sync and uh, sounds like it's got a few features. I still think that your first choice should be whatever backup solution comes with your distribution. But if you're looking for a little more control, R-Sync, GR-Sync, or Lucky Backup, there you go. Yeah, well, you know me, backup, hmm, that's a foreign word. I just do the nuke and pave and move on. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> okay. <laughs> Don't take my advice. Listen to Mario. Nikolai sends us our next email. Hello, I'm a newly arrived listener of your show. It's really nice getting and hearing your thoughts on various topics related to running Linux as your main operating system. I have one challenge, which I wonder if you dealt with on your show, which is sharing. I'm aiming at going all Linux at home, and I have installed Ubuntu Mate on two machines so far. However, I'm a bit set back by discovering that my other Linux machine doesn't show up in my browse network area in Kaha. Should it automatically? Samba is installed, but that really shouldn't have any significance when it comes to getting two Linux machines talking to each other and sharing with each other, right? Can I find anything about sharing in an all Linux environment in any of your episodes? Or do you know where I should turn for help? Thanks for your show. You make the experience of crossing over to Linux a lot less Lonely Ranger-like. <laughs> <laughs> All the best. I think you meant Lone Ranger. Yeah, well, Lonely Ranger, Lone Ranger. Okay. I'll yeah, anyway. Either one. Um. Yeah, so I think, in fact, we have written an article on sharing. And when he says we, he means him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Nikolai, we have a link to our home networking basics uh, article and an article on sh setting up your wireless home network if you want to do it wirelessly uh, and in there we talk a little bit about uh, home networking and sharing uh, across networks it's a bit old it's from back in 2008 and we discussed this on episode 53 which was back in that same time frame so things might have changed but there may be some good tips in there and if anyone knows why uh, Nikolai is having problems getting computers to show up on his network uh, and would like to provide a comment on that Either send us an email or put it in our Google Plus community as a chat message with a suggestion for Nikolai. Thanks. Okay, thanks, Nikolai. Our next email comes from Paul, and he writes, Hi, Larry and Bill. Thanks for all you do for the Linux users community. I have learned very much about Linux by listening to your show over the last seven or eight years. I have recently found some great laptop deals on eBay. I have purchased some T400s that were inexpensive and worked really well. Last week I bought a Dell Latitude D630. However, when going through the BIOS discovered CompuTrace was loaded and activated. From what I've learned, CompuTrace cannot be deactivated or removed by the user. Only absolute software owners of the CompuTrace can deactivate it. I believe CompuTrace can remotely view files and maybe even keylog a particular laptop without the user knowing it. Also, CompuTrace can shut down a computer if they determine it has been stolen. Uh, 
If you received a nice laptop at a bargain price with CompuTrace activated, would you keep it or return it? If you were able to do so, if you decide to keep it, would you call CompuTrace, advise them that you bought their laptop on eBay and that it isn't stolen? If Absolute agrees to deactivate CompuTrace, is that enough for you to keep the laptop? After all, how would a user even know CompuTrace was actually deactivated? Thanks again, Paul in North Texas. So, Larry, what I did is I uh, went and used the, the Goog and found um, some information about CompuTrace that was presented at Black Hat. And just let me read a little bit of this um, from them. And it says, nearly every PC that has an anti-theft product called CompuTrace embedded, so it's embedded in the BIOS of the PC, and it's an optional ROM, or it's Unified Extendable Firmware Interface, or UEFI. CompuTrace is a legitimate trusted application developed by Absolute Software. However, it often runs without user consent, persistently uh, activates itself at system boot and can be exploited to perform various attacks and to take complete control of the affected machine. And it says, basically goes on and says, Kaspersky lab researchers, um, along with another, uh, it's called Kubica Labs, earlier presented their research in a briefing titled Absolute Computrace Revisit six months ago. And I'll include the link in our show notes. But uh, it says, uh, CompuTrace should not be enabled by default, Absolute Software's technical documentation says. And it just keeps, goes on. But they, they say it does have some issues. So I, and it looks like it's built into the, it's, they had to actually buy it with this BIOS. I guess it's a, well, companies might do that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, my opinion, uh, no thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my recommendation by email back to Paul was, I'd return it. <laughs> the The hassle you potentially have to go through to, is much greater than the hassle of returning the laptop, and mm -hmm. I'd see if I could find another ThinkPad. Yeah, but why would anybody want to deal with something like that? I mean, is it just for ma mainly companies? You know, um, uh, who's CompuTrace providing this information back to? I mean, is it the D Dell in this case, or is it the original purchaser? Of Probably the, the original I don't purchaser. I think so, right? If you were the original purchaser, uh, how would you know that CompuTrace was already on there, unless it was a corporate purchase and you requested it to be put on there? Yeah, it says it's an know. optional BIOS ROM or whatever, but yeah, anything yeah. that can link my computer to stuff, you know, or opens up. Uh, attack vectors i i don't want that's why you kind of want to run linux <laughs> right exactly and this sounds like it loads before your operating system anyway so yeah at boot you've got no choice on this one yeah yeah not something i want to mess with uh, hey i got a great deal on CompuTrace for you larry uh, yeah thanks no <laughs> thanks, no thanks. <laughs> okay <laughs> no thanks all right our next email is from Mike. He writes, hello, just got done listening to your remote desktop podcast episode. Awesome amount of information. I would like to remote into my Linux box using my Surface. They would both be on the same network. Any way to do that from a W machine to an L machine. Also, is sound not available while on remote? Uh, I did respond back to Mike on this. And I said, typically there's no sound with remote connections. 
Um, I think I've heard that there are ways to get sound using some connection software, but I really haven't got any experience with those. The best cross-platform solution I've run across is TeamViewer at this point. It's not open source, but it performs consistently and works whether you're on the same network or not. We've talked about that on the show in the past. I haven't tried it on a Surface, but I know it works on Windows 7 and 8, and I'd be interested to know if it works for you. There is a way to remote into your Linux computer and run one of its GUI applications at a time, displayed in a window and running on your local Windows desktop. To do it, you'll need SSH connection running the PuTTY application, P-U-T-T-Y application on each computer. To make it work, you need to enable X forwarding. Uh, and we've provided two links back to Mike, and we'll provide them in the show notes as well, to two articles. One, The second one is specifically describing opening Linux applications on a Windows desktop. And I remember doing this on a Windows 7 and running the Mate desktop applications from my Linux Mint computer on Windows 7. So those two links probably would help. Uh, and Mike, you didn't mention which distribution of Linux you're using, so I've also included an article about using XRDP on Ubuntu to allow control of your computer from Windows. Unfortunately, XRDP seems to require the XFCE desktop environment to work. It doesn't seem to work on other desktop environments. So let us know how it works out, and thanks for listening. Yep. Our next email comes from Bob, and he writes, Hi, Bill and Larry. I often hear about how easy it is to run Windows applications on Linux using Wine. I want to do that with my favorite bookmark application, Linkman Pro. And he gives us the uh, link to it. But I just can't make it happen. When I go to Wine's website, I see a lot of information about the apps database making requests to the developers. It doesn't make sense to me, so I just downloaded Wine and tried to install Linkman. Everything seemed to go right, and Linkman looks like it should start, but it never actually does. The application window just never opens. I did get a warning window when I decided to uninstall Linkman, but that was not the success I was looking for. <laughs> Any suggestions on what I might be doing wrong? I can def definitely live without this bookmark manager, but it's really a very basic kind of program. If I can't run something this simple, I can't imagine having any use for Wine at all. Since Wine is popular, I figure the problem is more likely to be between my ears than it is my laptop. I'm running uh, Ubuntu Mate 16.04 LTS. Thanks, Bob. Hmm. Have you ever used Linkman Pro? I have never heard of it, but if it's just a yeah. basic... Well, let me say this. Wine on certain programs works great. And on other programs, it you know there's little hiccups and then I found some that it just does not work and I, I don't really think it's wind problem it could be the way the program's written it might be calling on some you know, since it's a Windows program it might be calling on some some system um, resources that uh, wine can't uh, take advantage of or right. it might be something that he needs to install maybe a library or something to actually make it work um, I would suggest uh, I'm sure he's already done it, but look in um, 
type in Google and see if uh, someone else might have had this issue because you know there's a lot of uh, links people that you know like certain Windows programs and surely someone else is using this link man so I'm sure someone might have an issue with it and might be able to kind of give him some uh, guidance on what he needs to do I'm th seeming to think it's maybe just a library he needs to install yeah, and you might want to just take a look at the bookmark manager that's built into your browser, whether that's Chrome or Firefox or whatever yeah, browser you use on Linux, because the bookmark managers have come a long way within the browser themselves. Mm -hmm. And maybe you're looking for a separate application for managing the bookmarks, but I'm not sure that's absolutely necessary since those bookmark managers manage what's stored on your hard drive in the uh, configuration folders for the browser you're using, it's really not something that's working from the cloud, for example. So yeah, take a look at that first, and then maybe you don't have to worry about Wine and these hinky programs from Windows that may or may not work on Wine. Hinky. So hinky, yeah. <laughs> Another yeah. technical term. Sorry for all the technical <laughs> terms in this episode, guys. We're just inventing new terms. But yeah, um, I'll have to see... Um what Linkman looks like, I might be able to, you know, find something um, that's very similar if if he doesn't like the ones in um, the built-into browsers ever. But send us an email and let us know if if you found something that will that will work. If not, I'll see what I can dig up. Yeah. Okay. And uh, maybe you'll be lucky, and it's an open source application written for Windows, and you'll be able to fix the problem and contrib contribute back to them and. Yeah, right. Okay, uh, moving oh, on. that's cold. <laughs> okay. Uh, Bob wrote us again. He said, hi, guys. It's actually my second email for you today, the first one being about wine. I would have combined them into a single email if I had gotten frustrated with my mouse earlier in the day. This time I'm trying to change how two buttons on my Logitech Wireless M570 trackball mouse work. It's a wireless mouse. Like any other, it worked perfectly as soon as I inserted its USB receiver. Unfortunately, Logitech doesn't provide Linux drivers, so I don't have an easy way to change its default behavior. This trackball has two extra buttons that default to back and forward in a browser and don't do anything in LibreOffice. I'd like to change their behavior so that they work as page up and page down in my browser and LibreOffice. I've read a, all the articles I could find online, and the one I understood best seems to be consistent with other articles. I found it here, and it's a link to um, Michigan State University article, and we'll include a link to that in the show notes. All it needed me to do was install two packages, xbind keys and xautomation, and create an xkeybind src configuration file. I did that, and I used the command xev uh, grep-i button that I found in another article conf to confirm that Linux identified the buttons I was interested in as numbers 8 and 9. All my attempts failed, and nothing about the trackball's behavior ever changed. It's pretty clear that detecting and responding to a mouse click is easy in Linux, so why can't I change what those buttons do by editing a simple text file? I'm running Ubuntu Mate 16.04 LTS and checked my results in Chrome, Firefox, and and Chromium browsers. Thanks again. And that's enough for me for one day, Bob. Well, Bob, um, 
I have in our show notes provided an additional link, maybe you've already explored this one, uh, to some additional setup for XBind keys that might actually give you a clue as to how to get this set up. And I'm beginning to suspect that one of the reasons why the Logitech folks don't have a driver specific for Linux for these keys is maybe Linux can't recognize these keys. Maybe it's just a hardware limitation or a software limitation or something. Normally you can get these keys working though. Uh, maybe it's a matter of persistence. I don't think my mouse is a 570. Maybe it is. Um, and if it is, I'll take a look at it. No, it's not. It's a 705. But it has those two keys. I never use them. Maybe I'll try to configure them and see how they work. Okay. Um, anyway, if anyone has a solution for uh, Bob's M570 extra key setup, uh, please let us know. Our next email comes from Rainey, and he writes, Hi, Larry and Bill. In your last episode, someone brought up Ubuntu GNOME and how you didn't mention it a lot. Well, I've been using it, using it for a good while now. I can say that I really like it. Currently, I am running it on a Lenovo T460P and am fairly happy with it. The display wireless and sound cards are all recognized right out of the box and almost everything works flawlessly. The few things that I have encountered or noticed when I put it on this machine when installing, I selected to download updates automatically and install non-free codecs. It hung on the screen for more than 30 minutes until I eventually gave up and installed it without these two things. After the installation was completed, I installed the updates and codecs separately. Not sure if this is a bug, but I haven't encountered this behavior when installing Ubuntu Mate or Ubuntu proper at all. When I visit pages on Wikipedia, generally the italic words aren't displayed. For example, if I visit this page and it's uh, the Wikipedia and he just gives a, a long link, I won't read it, uh, but it's in our show notes. The phonetic spellings and italics don't show at all. However, if I search in DuckDuckGo.com for Coop and the summary shows up on the right hand side everything is there very odd and i haven't figured out what the problem is google chrome has no issues uh, with displaying all of this so it must be related to firefox somehow however when i run firefox on any of the other uh, ubuntu's this problem doesn't present itself. Lastly, I, I have installed a Plex media server. After setting everything up, my library, my library doesn't populate itself. Followed the instructions to the letter and didn't encounter an issue in Mate or XFCE. Just GNOME doesn't seem to, and GNOME just doesn't seem to like it. If anybody has any advice on how to fix my little issues, I would welcome any and all feedback. Sorry for making this so long. Keep up the great work, Rainy. Hmm. Yeah, and the Wikipedia article is for uh, the word coupé, which is uh, the French uh, or European pronunciation of what here in North America we call coupe. Uh, and it's a, you know, two-door car, basically. Um, and what he's talking about here is the accented character. Uh, the 
E with the accent over the E, is not showing up on some of his browsers. And what you might want to check is make sure that the character set is set to UTF-8. Uh, that will display the accented characters as well as the uh, non-accented characters in your browser. And that setting alone might just change it for you. Okay? Sounds like a plan to me. Okay. Our next email is from Daniel. He writes, Ubuntu 16.04 is on my computer. I want to use my Ubuntu DVD to install Ubuntu to a USB drive, which has partitions and would need to be reformatted. I know that during installation, I would choose something else, then go to SDB to do what I need to prepare this drive. How may I find out how to format this drive to a Linux format? I would like instructions using the keyboard. Okay, Daniel, um, as far as instructions using the keyboard, I'm not going to verbally try to do that here. But um, I think that when you check something else uh, and you go to the USB device to install Ubuntu, uh, that being your SDB on your particular computer, I think if you just choose um, install Ubuntu normally, you know, not, rather than something else, it should do the formatting and everything for you, even on a USB drive. Maybe there's not enough space on that drive. Maybe that's why you are thinking about doing it that way. But I would think that formatting the boot partition as a boot partition, I think there's a boot format for that. The swap drive, there's definitely a swap format for that. And the, um, the main uh, home directory, uh, ext4 is what most of the Debian-based Linux distributions use as the default these days. There's some argument for using journaled file systems and other things, but this is a USB drive, for goodness sake. So, you know, ext4 should work just fine. So those are the things you want to choose. And there are probably some terminal commands for doing this that might actually be better for you if you want to use the keyboard for doing this. Uh, and as I said, I'm not going to try to describe that verbally here on the podcast, uh, but you might want to just Google for um, manual partitioning using terminal or something like that on, uh, on Linux uh, and see if you can find some instructions on that. I'm sure there are plenty of them out there. You've been able to do that for decades on Linux. Well, I know he said he wanted to do it from the keyboard, but uh, maybe he could also look at UNet booting. That seems to have a lot of information. Maybe he can find the commands he's looking for on that that way. Yeah, UNet booting is what I have used. Um, that might work as well as long as it's um, accessible because uh, Daniel, uh, if you remember, is a, uh, is a blind computer user. So oh, he, that's right. He, that's why he wants to do it from the keyboard. Okay, our next uh, email comes from Chard, and if I misspelled your name, sorry. <laughs> I do that a lot. Um, the buggy Wi-Fi situation of Ubuntu 16.04 and derivatives mentioned in podcast number 318 can be remedied by using WICD wireless interface connection daemon instead of network manager. Okay. Yeah, so... I've heard people pronounce that as the wicked network manager, as opposed to the standard network manager that comes in uh, 
Ubuntu derivatives. And I used that a long time ago and, you know, to resolve some Wi-Fi problems that I had with the network manager. And it worked just fine for me. Haven't used it in a long time, but I'm sure yeah. it still works. I used Wicked way back when I was uh, playing with, um, oh, golly, I can't remember the name of it. That's bad. But it was uh, one of the ones you had to, you have to do everything by text. And I remember Wicked was what they used. Um, oh, goodness. Can't remember it. Oh, well. <laughs> it must have been, I must have blocked it out because it was, because uh, the installing that was a pain. So painful. <laughs> yeah, still painful. <laughs> so my, you know, my mind has said, oh, I'm not remembering that. So anyway, yeah, I remember using it. And I remember it, it worked, but uh, it was, you had to enter a lot of stuff in and you had to know what, you know, the chipset and everything. So it was that, it was one of the only things that could get a bra, the old Broadcom to work. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons I used it as well. And I think that might have been in my Kubuntu 606 days or 610 or something like that. It's a long time ago. Yeah. I didn't really have to configure it. It just worked where the standard network manager didn't. Mm. It just worked out of the box. It came pre-configured to work with whatever the problem was I had. That's not a guarantee for everybody's situation, but <laughs> it worked for me. Well, can you, do you remember, I, I actually uh, have a, a Ubuntu 606, uh, uh, and I remember installing it, <laughs> and I remember certain things worked well and other things didn't. Certain things didn't work at all. Yeah, yeah it, <laughs> I remember it, those it, days. Yeah. It broke, and it, it, was, it was fun, but uh, that was, uh, was that Ubuntu's very first one? Or one of the very no, first. No, I think there was a five ten or something. Oh, five ten. I, I'm not that old, so yeah. yeah six <laughs> six oh six is when I first uh, found Ubuntu, but uh, it's come a long way. <laughs> things just a lot of things just work now that used to be make you want to pull your hair out. Yeah, yeah. You know these these young people who are just coming into Linux. <laughs> what? What? The, everything just works now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, in the old days we had to. Walk uphill both ways to get our dis- distributions to in run. In the snow. Yeah. <laughs> in the snow. Yeah. There you go. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Paul wrote us, Hi, Larry. I've been installing Linux Mint on a couple of laptops we use at home. I'd like to partition the drive myself, installing a separate home partition. Can you give me some recommendations for an optimal size for the system partition? I recently ran into trouble because I ran out of room at 7 gigabytes and had to enlarge it using Gparted. I doubled the partition size to roughly 16 gigabytes. Thanks for the podcast. I continue to learn a lot of valuable Linux info. Paul in North Texas. Well, Paul, seven gigabytes is really small. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so I would recommend as a minimum, 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 very, very, very minimum, 20 gigabytes. I think that's the recommendation from Linux Mint, in fact, is 20 gigabytes. Go onto their website and take a look at what their minimum specs. But um, yeah, the bigger, the better, obviously. And depending on how much data you're going to consume, that will determine how big of a home partition you need and depending on how many applications you're going to install that's really what determines how big the system partition needs to be so yeah i would uh, if you're installing a lot of applications i would make that as big as you can humanly tolerate yes yeah, seven gigabytes is tiny yes i i think my system <laughs> um uh, partition last time i looked at it was like 250 gigs or something 
it was, it was yeah, big. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, someone told me that it should be at least like a hundred. But then I I tend to go big on everything. <laughs> so, yeah. But I wonder why. Do you think maybe he just has a real small hard drive and he was just trying to save his? Yeah, it could be. Yeah. He he may have an older computer, and some of the older computers have. You know, I've I've got maybe a five, seven, eight, nine, ten year old computer with a twenty gigabyte hard drive that maybe I swapped out to the twenty gigabyte drive from a smaller drive that came with the computer. Uh, so yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe he's just got twenty gigabytes and that's all he has available. So. That can be a challenge, that's for sure. And you might actually need to install a version of Linux that has a smaller footprint, perhaps something that comes with XFCE or LXDE as the, the base desktop. Yeah. Our next email comes from Zodi. I believe that's how you say it, Zodi. Close enough. Um, yeah, look close enough. So if I misspell that or mispronounce it, you know who to yell at, Larry. <laughs> he says hi i like your podcast and i'm currently attempting to start my own not really knowing how to go about it at all but i like the podcast tool you have on your site i've attached a screenshot of what i'm talking about he and he attested a screenshot of our podcast audio player how did you go about creating this tool and posting it in your site. I would like to use it on my site for quick reference to my casts, but now, but not sure how it's set up. Also, is this an app I can download to include into my site? Thanks. Do you provide tutoring or help in getting this started? Perhaps a paid service you provide? Zodi. Well, Zodi, I'm going to tell you what. Larry's a wizard, um, and I'm going to let him answer this because I think he already responded to you. But yeah. uh, uh, I don't think Larry has a paid service. He might, and he not tell me about it. And if he is, I, I want my cut. So, Larry? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't... Um provide consulting on these kinds of things for a fee however i'll send you an email for free and that's exactly <laughs> what i did with uh, zodi so here's what i wrote there are several things you need a blog or website if you use something like wordpress for this they may also have an audio player that you can use instead of creating your own in html a method of recording and editing your your audio hardware and software, a place to make your audio files available on the internet that can be your website or blog or a third-party hosting site, uh, an RSS feed, a text file that allows podcast sites to find your files and listeners to subscribe, uh, submit the RSS feed to iTunes and other podcasting sites so that your listeners can discover your podcast and subscribe. Let me recommend as well some resources that you can use to learn about how to podcast. These guys will focus on using Windows and Mac as opposed to Linux. So once you understand the basics, if you want some help understanding what Linux applications you can use to record, edit, and manage the podcast, I can help. I'd recommend the free content in these sites first. Then if you want more help, consider the paid offerings. First is Dave Jackson's School of Podcasting. 
And we'll have a link to all these things, of course, in the show notes. Dave has free content to get you started as well as paid programs. You can subscribe to Dave's podcast there as well. Another Dave Jackson podcast you might find useful is Weekly Web Tools. And you might also consider Cliff Ravenscraft's podcast, Answer Man. His free content and he has paid content as well. Uh, podcasting A to Z program, and we have a link to the podcast Answer Man website uh, in our show notes too. So Dave Jackson actually got back to Zodi uh, because I forwarded him a copy of this and suggested uh, some things for uh, Zodi to look at and uh, recommended he stay away from what we use for hosting our audio files, which is the uh, Internet Archive. Uh, Dave has found it a little less than reliable in, in his use. We found it pretty reliable for us. But, uh, you know, Dave has his own opinion on things, and we respect that, and we disagree. <laughs> so, <laughs> But uh, Dave's a great uh, source of information on how to uh, podcast, as is Cliff, and uh, we've provided links both to Zodi directly and in our show notes, of course. Yep. Our last email comes from Jim, and he writes, Hi, I've been listening to your podcast 319. You discussed GRSync, which I didn't know existed. Years ago, I started using Lucky Backup, which sounds similar to GRSync. It's good to know that I have another option. Good podcast, by the way, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Okay. Yeah, thanks. And uh, you're the second mention of Lucky Backup. Maybe we should take a look at that. Yes, maybe. <laughs> maybe. So, Larry, yes. I actually have a software pick today, application. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which, what is that? I've suggested this before, but I, I uh, just updated to the latest LibreOffice 5. And, oh yeah, yeah. I've been having an update uh, my resume and sent some letters out, and um, it's. Uh, I like how they're they're really polishing it, and it's it's saved my bacon a few times. So, uh, if you're not running LibreOffice five or not running the latest version of LibreOffice, I suggest uh, downloading it and giving it a whirl because it's really becoming uh, uh, a awesome. Oh, it is an awesome application, but it just seemed to just keep adding features and, and polishing it. So that's it's awesome. So give it a try. Yeah, absolutely. I, I use it as well, and I find it improving more and more over time. So I'm becoming more and more impressed with it. And they've given an alternative user mm -hmm. interface as well for the menus in the latest version and some uh, some other upcoming up, up, updates and upgrades and it, it's just a phenomenal office yeah, suite well, for sure. Yeah, well, if a chimp like me can make it work, eh, <laughs> eh, someone that's smarter than me, I think they really enjoy it. Like I said, it's uh, um, it's absolutely a, uh, a lifesaver for me because um, you know I stopped using uh, it most Microsoft products, and I uh, just sometimes I have. Uh, uh, Windows on a partition, but I really haven't had to log in to use anything because uh, LibreOffice seems to work, so it makes me happy. Yeah, I think the only Microsoft product that I use on a regular basis outside of work is is this one called SkyPE, S-K-Y-P-E, SkyPE. Uh, yeah, uh, it... Uh... <laughs> 
<laughs> it seems to work for us, and uh, I'm using the uh, Skype for Linux beta. Well, you oh yeah, I forgot. I keep forgetting Skype is a Microsoft product, but it, but it's not without its problems. And let's just drop it at that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, used to work better than it does now, that's yes. for sure. Anyway, okay, uh, that's it for our episode for this time. And uh, we haven't chosen a topic for our user experience episode, but we'll have a fascinating topic, I'm sure, by the time we record As long as I it. don't write it. Uh, well, hey, come on, you, you've been writing some good ones. Yeah. Come uh, on. No, okay. Anyway, until then, you can go to our website at goinglikes.com for articles and show notes, as well as links to download and subscribe. We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. If you'd like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Linux podcast Google Plus community. Until next time, thanks for listening. 73. And don't believe Bill. He does a good job. Theme music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.